You've seen the best. You've seen the worst. Now here's the rest of both worlds. I'm Gayfesh, and I've kept Rick Berman locked in my basement since 2005. And I'm Ari, and when I was younger, I thought William Shatner was my grandfather. And today we will be reviewing the Next Generation episode in Counter at Farpoint. But uh, first, we decided to do this podcast because uh, we each have a different history with Star Trek. Relationship? Relationship. We have a different (laughs) relationship with Star Trek. So why don't you tell me about your relationship with Star Trek? I grew up watching the original series on like reruns on Channel 11 when I was a kid. And I saw all the movies, usually on my birthday, because they came out in December. And but I have never seen any of the shows except for Voyager. So I recently decided to just try The Next Generation because any and everyone says it's amazing. And this is where we're at. <laughs> As for me, um, I don't remember a time when I wasn't watching Star Trek. I thought it was just something that was always on TV. Um, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I just thought The Next Generation was just always a thing. I have seen every episode of every series uh, at least once, like the newer series like Discovery and Lower Decks and Picard. I think I've seen each of those episodes once. But if you go back to the 90s series, I've watched all of them at least three or four times. I ran a blog for seven years called Chrono Trek in which I reviewed every single episode of Star Trek. I, I watched you do that, too. It took you a very long time. Yes, it did. So, we thought we would have this podcast so that we could get different insights, uh, a veteran and an office. So, yeah. uh, with that out of the way, let's get into the episode. So, our first episode, and I'm kind of excited because it's our first episode, is Encounter at Farpoint, and it's written and directed by DC Fontana, and Jaden Roddenberry were the writers, and Corey Allen was the director. Captain Jean-Luc Picard leads the crew of the USS Enterprise-D on its maiden voyage to examine a new planetary station for trade with the Federation. On the way, they encounter Q, an omnipotent extra-dimensional being who challenges humanity as a barbaric inferior species. Picard and his new crew must hold off Q's challenge and solve the puzzle of Farpoint Station on Deneb 4, a base that is far more than it seems to be. So, what were your impressions of this episode? Well, space... Jellyfish is not what I was expecting. <laughs> I can say that for sure. <laughs> um, I was not expecting where it went. So as far as what I was expecting, I think I was expecting something a little bit more cheesy. And I mean, while it was super cheesy, I actually really enjoyed this episode. I've now seen it twice because um, I rewatched it so we could talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I really liked it for both parts of it because to me it's very obvious where the two parts change even though netflix has it as one episode there's a i really like the first part more than the second and on second watch i realized that's because i like q and so now i finally understand what people have been talking about for about 30 years of my life (laughs) when they talk about q (laughs) (laughs) so my first so my my impressions of it were that it was a little bit more like polished than I was expecting for a pilot of the next generation, having seen like, you know, random references and episodes going on TV when I wasn't really paying attention to them when I was a kid and stuff. So it was more polished than I expected. Mm-hmm. So um, it actually was uh, aired as a single episode. Um, it's It's been split into parts one and two for like syndication purposes, but it, it was just one single episode. However, it was written 
as an hour-long pilot. And then the studio was like, hey, make it two hours. And so that's when they added the Q subplot. Yeah, I heard that. Or I heard that. I read that on IMDb later. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because obviously Q's the most important, interesting part of the episode. And he was basically an afterthought. Uh, Right. And you can also kind of like get that feeling from the writing because the mystery of Farpoint doesn't seem like it's a huge challenge, but like it's played up through the episode that where Q's like, Oh, you'll never figure this one out. And I'm just like, I I don't know. I feel like they figured it out. You you didn't even need to be there. (laughs) I know. I know. That's true. When you think of it from like more of like a high up perspective, Q didn't really need to be there, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it sure does make the interesting more or the episode more interesting. And the Q stuff, I think, uh, is the is the interesting stuff in the episode, particularly because this it, it completely changes the course of the episode. The original episode was just about them solving uh, Farpoint, but Q in there makes it about humanity and makes it about how humanity has evolved in the four hundred years uh, between now and then. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the different costumes Q goes in and the different eras of humanity he represents. Uh, they kind of play uh, Q's costume changes a bit in the future, but like for the most part, when we see him in the future, he's just wearing a Starfleet uniform. But so I this- read why that is, though. I, I did a I did a little bit of reading on this episode. <laughs> uh-huh. I read because originally, apparently, Q was supposed to be a multifaceted like race that all looked like Q, and so he supposedly that's why he plays the costume changes and the way that he does is because originally it was supposed to be like a hive mind type race that um could just but they all looked like Q. Oh, that's interesting. I don't think I had read that. I think you've yeah, got something I was that flipping I didn't through know. the IMDb. And I saw that and I was like, oh, that's interesting because and if you the person who wrote the comment you, says if you go back and watch the episode with that in mind, it kind of makes sense. Which And it makes sense that they got rid of that later so he doesn't play it up as much, which is interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> I'm going through my notes here and I have written, why is the phaser so tiny? <laughs> so when Q freezes the guy that had pulled the phaser on him and then Picard pulls it out. It's like this not even credit card size thing. It's just little tiny, like it looks like a pog basically. I did not (laughs) catch that. (laughs) It was just for that episode. Later on, they, they ended up looking through more like a a dust buster in shape and size, but it's just, it's this little funny thing where in the pilot, they're like, Oh, well it's the future. So the phaser doesn't need to be as big, but I'm like, well, there's a utility to that size. There is. Yeah. Imagine pulling a little credit card out to shoot somebody like that would be hard. (laughs) My notes say that Kenneth Branagh would make a great cue. And I stand by that. Ooh, (laughs) actually, no, I agree with you. That would be fun. Uh, Though. John Delancey is Q, obviously. Obviously, his 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 whole thing kind of is Q, but um, I don't know why I wrote that note, but I think I just thought it would be... I was thinking of other people, probably because the Shakespeare thing. Because there's a couple times, doesn't Q sh- quote Shakespeare? Or am I misremembering? Um, I don't think he quoted the Shakespeare in this episode, but I do know that Picard has quoted Shakespeare at Q in future episodes. Okay. Um, Shakespeare's more Picard's thing. So, have you seen uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, the original one? I have, a very long time ago when I was a child. I haven't rewatched that one. So, uh, do you remember uh, Commander Decker and Ilya? 
uh he was like they were like the kind of the romance thing Ilya was the shaved headed woman who got taken over by Viger so yes before that movie was made they were going to make a new Star Trek show called Star Trek Phase 2. They were going to bring back as mu- as much of the original cast as they could. They weren't going to get everyone. Leonard Nimoy didn't want to come back. But they uh, had, I think, like 12 or 13 episodes written for it, and Decker and Ilya were going to be in it. Um, mm. And then Star Wars came out. And <laughs> they were like, oh, wait. The sci-fi is actually making like Mondo bucks at the box office. Let's take the pilot and turn it into a movie, which right. they did. And then a couple more movies later, Star Trek four comes out. They're like, Oh wow. Star Trek is popular enough because of Star Trek four. Let's make that show. Now is Star Trek four the whales one. Yes. Yeah, Star Trek four is okay. the whales one. Obviously they couldn't just bring back the original cast. They're all doing movies now, but they had these scripts handy. And so there's a lot of stuff, especially in the first season, that are, they are just reworked scripts from Star Trek Phase 2. And so one of the biggest plot lines that you see carried over from that original plan for Phase 2 into TNG is Decker and Ilya, who are now called Riker and Troy. Oh, okay. That makes sense, though. Yes, because... Uh, like, if you go back to that movie and you see the first time Decker and Ilya see each other, you see it's like, oh, yeah, they definitely had a thing going on. And then they play the exact same scene in TNG when Picard introduces Riker and Troy. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> Give me your impression of, of each character. Let's start from the top. Let's go with Picard. Why does Picard hate kids so much? It felt so forced. Like, I have so many notes to say, I'm Captain Picard and I'm a jerk to kids. (laughs) That was my first impression of him was, wow. Okay, so they really want to, like, drive home this concept that he hates kids, especially Wesley. So that I'm assuming he can have the character arc into Wesley being a member of the crew. But it feels so weird and forced. And it's the only thing I really remember of Picard from the episode other than being very good at verbally sparring with Q, he was really good at that stuff. Um, well, you, but you, you nailed it on the head. It's the character growth. It's supposed to be him growing fond of Wesley and becoming a kind of a paternal figure to Wesley. Yeah. Uh, and y- you'll see that growth as the show goes on, not just with Wesley, because Wesley leaves the show halfway through, but just with oh, does kids he? in I general. I didn't know that. Yeah. Is um, now a good time to talk about how I spent most of my life thinking that Wesley won a walk on role from Cheerios? Because <laughs> <laughs> Tell me so, that story. So growing up, um, I watched TV, but I didn't watch The Next Generation. But there was this contest that Cheerios had a commercial for that I would see all the time in the 90s, like win a walk on role in The Next Generation. And so I assumed a kid won it. And s- and th- someone in my teenage years convinced me that that's how um, Wesley became a character on the show. But then they liked him so much that they kept him on as Wesley. But he's there in the first episode. So obviously that's not the case. <laughs> but that's what I have gone my whole life thinking he won a walk on role from that Cheerios commercial. I think it was Cheerios. And then he became a regular cast member. That's so funny because. Will Wheaton was one of the most famous people in the original cast. 
Like, right. See, I figured that out later when I was like, wait, stand by me. <laughs> yeah. <a> yeah. No, <laughs> Will Wheaton and LeVar Burton were like the celebrities going into this show. Everyone else was kind of an unknown. So <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah. No, I, my, for about 20 years, I mean, it was, it was, it was like my mid twenties or, or late twenties, mid thirties, maybe where I finally just asked someone like, so did he win a walk on role? Because I don't understand the timeline between this and stand by me then. <laughs> So, yeah. So, yeah, I thought for a long time he was the Cheerios walk-on kid. Mm-hmm. So well, that was my first impression of him, is that he wasn't the Cheerios walk-on kid, because this is the first episode and he's in it. Well, I uh, I just mentioned him, LeVar Burton. What, what are your thoughts on Jordy? I cannot stop singing Reading Rainbow in my head every time he's on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he's hilarious, because I think it's this first episode in, mm-hmm. in Encounter at Firepoint, but... A Beverly Crusher is kind of like messing with his his Kanye glasses, and uh-huh. he's he's like, uh, "See you later." <laughs> I was <laughs> like, "Come on, that has to be deliberate." Like just his humor or whatever, right? My my he, mom had a hair clip that looks just like Jordy's visor, and I would wear oh, that the banana thing all clips the time. from the eighties. Yeah, 80s. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can. I'm pretty see sure it. they they just did that. And here's a really funny thing. Um, Lavar's vision was reduced by about 80% when he wore those things. So, so he was a, practically blind. <laughs> so he's a seeing man putting those things on to be blind to play a blind man who puts those things on to see. Yeah. Yeah. There is a point, though, and I don't think it was this episode since so we're talking about first impressions, but I, I, I died when I was watching it because he said, I think it's the naked now. He says something like, I've, I've never seen a rainbow. <laughs> And I was like, come on, brain. No, don't sing the Reading Rainbow song. But it it happened anyway, you know. (laughs) So the Jordy, who else are we missing? Riker. I mean, the man just exudes charisma. I don't know what to say about him other than he just seems like he's in control of things all the time because he's got this like suave kind of debonair attitude about him i don't know what to say beyond that other than he seems like he knows what he's doing (laughs) one thing that i noticed that they did uh with this cast specifically is they very much wanted to break away from tos where it was very obviously one main character and everyone else was supporting right and that's very much so with captain kirk yeah and that's why they established Riker not letting picard go on away missions because they wanted somebody else to go out and do the adventures. Picard is the main character of the show, obviously, but he's the captain of the ship. He His place is on the bridge, so he right. should be staying on the bridge. Yeah. Um, also, I think they they wanted the captain to have more of a, um, a paternalistic, uh, authoritarian vibe to him rather than the, the, the roguish uh, Kirk. So they put all the roguish um, uh, bangability tropes into Riker. And I think it works much better because you can't have somebody who's like chasing girls all the time, captain a ship. Like that was one of the things that like I felt like in, I don't remember the original series that well, but I remember like it it felt like it got them into trouble on a regular basis, you know? (laughs) I think Kirk's um, sexual exploits kind of get played up in pop culture um, and it was certainly more something that that he engaged in in like the later seasons, but mm-hmm. um, especially the first season, like they really just wanted his love interest to be Yeoman Rand. Um, and oh. even then, he was always just 
uh, Kirk isn't even as like a maverick as as pop culture plays him. Like he was very much he he wasn't the shoot at the hip cowboy that that pop culture has uh, has in mind for him. He was actually just like a very good Starfleet officer. I think the reason that we have that impression as like pop culture goes though is because the moments that stand out to us are the moments where he's being that guy. Correct. And yeah. that's definitely the Kirk that we got in the J.J. Abrams movies. Oh, true. Yes, that is very much the Kirk we got in those movies. And Chris Pine pay- plays him very well, mm-hmm. you know, and in that way. But it would be interesting to potentially see, like, a Star Trek, like, reboot of the original series that writes it in a slightly different way. But I don't think they'll ever do that since they just always kind of move on and do a different different stories kind of thing well the closest we're getting to a tos reboot is uh strange new worlds which should be premiering next year um which will be uh set during uh captain pike's time as captain of the enterprise so oh that's right yeah well, i forgot about that we're gonna have several of the tos characters in there spock's gonna be in there yuhuru is gonna be in there uh, uh nurse chapel's gonna be in there um, all with new character and all with new um, new actors people obviously. playing them. N- okay. Yeah, no, yeah. no, they're they're wheeling out Nichelle Nichols um, uh, uh, to to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to answer the phone for the Enterprise. Speaking of which, um, I I had to ask, even though it was my second watch, is that Bones? Yes, that is in fact <laughs> DeForest Kelly playing Bones. And then I had to Google it. Turns out it was supposed to be Spock, but the contract negotiations didn't go well. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Leonard Nimoy has always getting him to come back to Star Trek has always been a thing of we're going to give you like the only reason he agreed to do Star Trek two was because they killed off his character. And then they're like, well, we want you to come back. And he's like, well, <laughs> I'll come back, but I get to direct the movie. And yeah, he directed uh, Star Trek three. So, um, oh, he did. I didn't know that. But it's interesting. But even getting DeForest Kelly was a very interesting story because when it was announced that they were making Star Trek The Next Generation, DeForest Kelly was quoted as saying that the only Star Trek was his Star Trek. So it seemed like he was not happy that they were going to be doing a new Star Trek. However, uh, Gene Roddenberry asked him to do the cameo and he expected him to say no. But not only did Forrest Kelly say yes, he said he was delighted to do it, and he did it for SAG scale. What does that mean, SAG scale? That means he did it for the minimum u- uh, union uh, required payment. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he didn't do Just it. Just to kind of help? or Yeah, he didn't do it for, like, he could have asked for a lot more money to do that cameo, I'm sure, and he just, no, he just got, like, paid a day scale for, for, for the work. Interesting. Huh. So I have, so as far as first impressions of characters go... Um, Deanna, mm-hmm. I'm, I, at that first episode, I'm not sure how to feel about her. It's, she gets better. <laughs> um, she gets somewhat better. The writing for her is always kind of, it feels like they really didn't know what to do with her character. And especially like in season two, when they bring on Guinan, um, the, the bartender who, uh, she, she ends up giving people good advice and like, you just feel like, is that Whoopi Goldberg? That's Whoopi Goldberg's character. Yeah. Okay. And then you just kind of feel like, what exactly does she do on this ship? There are some episodes that do treat her better later in the show, especially, I think a big part of it is after encounter at Farpoint, 
we basically never see her in Starfleet uniform until season six. Okay, that's in my notes because it's, but not for this episode, but we'll talk about it now. How come she gets to have a fancy outfit? Like, is it Betazoid cultural? Is that what it is? Or why does she have these weird ass one-off outfits that nobody else has? Two words. Rick Berman. Rick Berman was the executive producer (laughs) um, after Gene Roddenberry, and he was one of the producers uh, during Gene's tenure, and uh, he was a massive sexist, a uh, massive asshole. Nobody has anything good to say about him uh, f- uh, after having worked with him. He drove women off shows all the time, and he was always obsessing with cleavage. And that's why Deanna Troy is always wearing low-cut dresses. I see. He probably had something to do with Tasha's outfit in The Naked Now then, too, because I was like, wow, that's an outfit. <laughs> that might be Gene Roddenberry, honestly. Gene Roddenberry <laughs> really, really likes his sex, too. So so one of my notes, because I can't be serious about anything, says, does Deanna get her power from her hair because it seems to be growing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her hair in that episode is, uh, it's definitely a thing. Um, it's a thing. It's got. It's like a character of its own. Like it. It, it keeps moving and changing. And every time she's on screen, I'm like, look at that hair. It is very eighties. <laughs> yeah, it's that. It's the hair my mom still has to this day. But yes, it's very eighties. Now, can you tell me? Do you know what distinguishes uh, visually a Betazoid from a human? No, actually, I'd love for you to tell me. Uh, they have fully black irises. Oh, does she wear contacts? She does, and it's actually a shame because. If if you've seen Marina Sirtis's eyes, they're gorgeous. And oh no, they get, I'll have to pay attention. And they get covered up with these with, with the the black contacts, and it's kind of a shame. I wish that they had yeah. just given her like I don't know, like a forehead dot or something or something. Yeah, and she's only half Betazoid, right? Yes, her her mother is Betazoid and her father is human because they love that because that's the same as. No, it's the reverse, right? Of Spock, his yes. mom. No, his mom is his mom is human. Human, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I don't know what my impressions of her are, but I my my first impression is: is it really ethical to continually bring her on these missions because people feel things they don't always act on? Mm-hmm. But I have a lot of questions of ethics around whether or not she should be coming on these missions because she often stands there and goes, "Yeah, they're lying" or whatever. <laughs> you know? And it seems like the ethics. She's is- very useful in like negotiations because she's like, mm-hmm. oh, they're lying about this or that. And that, that comes up a couple times in like diplomacy stuff. I think it's interesting that they chose her to sit right next to Picard. And I think, especially in this episode, you notice she's like, well, this episode and a couple other episodes, she, she seems like she's one of his main advisors. And I yeah. think it's just because she's a Betazoid, she has a certain insight. So she's there to give the captain insight on things. Unfortunately, the thing she gives insight on, nine times out of ten, it's like, yeah, I can read their face, too. I know that's what they're feeling. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deanna. <laughs> yeah, she, it, it's, yeah, it doesn't exactly seem all that helpful. Um, I'm trying to think of, is there anybody, I guess, Data and Worf are the other two that I can think of off the top of my head. And Dr. Crusher. Oh, and Dr. Crusher, yeah. So I definitely think that... Either Bev and um, John Luke have had sex, or they want to have sex, one or the other. There is um, a definite sexual tension there, um, and I don't think it ever gets fully resolved. But it does kind of get like pushed into the background. I will say that as the show goes on, 
uh, Beverly is probably Jean-Luc's closest friend. So more like a best friend rather than a love interest after a while. Yes. And chemistry can be that. It doesn't have to be romantic. So that's fine. That's whatever. But that my first impression is something about the way they interacted. My notes say, oh, they've slept together or something. It certainly seems (laughs) to be the intention that she was written as his love interest. They ended up right. not going that direction in the show, but that seems to have been the intent. Um, but I really like her. Like, I don't know why, but she strikes me as the character I might relate to the most. Maybe because she's a mom, maybe because she's a doctor. I don't know. But I I really like Beverly Crusher so far. Maybe it's just because she's a redhead named Bev and <laughs> I have it. <laughs> I, I, I love Bev from It, so maybe that's what it is. Which came first, It? Or or uh, or encounter Farpoint. Well, it was written in like eighty three. Okay, so that came first. Yeah, and then the the when did when did this episode premiere? The one we're talking about eighty seven. Because I, I believe the it miniseries, the one with Tim Curry, and um, that one was eighty nine. So it was right after, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. So yeah, it's just funny that it's a redhead named Bev. But so far, I think she's one of my favorite characters. On top of Tasha, I really like Tasha. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, we we forgot about Tasha. We did. Um, I really like Tasha. She's, I mean, in the few episodes that I've seen, she's written kind of all over the place. But we'll see what comes of that, I suppose. <laughs> and um, but I really like her. I like that she's kind of like a tomboy and kind of like go get him. You know, like, I can do this. Like, I'm specifically thinking of Code of Honor when she says, you know, I can mm-hmm. I can do this. I'm a trained security officer. Yeah. And I and that I guess my first impression, I do have it written in my notes somewhere that I say something like uh, how if she's a security officer, why is she constantly leaving the Enterprise? But maybe I don't understand what a security officer is supposed to do. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're guards. I mean, in the original series, they were the red shirts that would always die. Those were the security officers. Those were the security officers. Okay, That's right. An interesting thing about Tasha, though, originally she was supposed to be Hispanic. Um, mm. uh, Gene Raddenberry kind of wanted that fiery Latina thing going on. And he actually was inspired to create the character because he had seen the movie Aliens. And he really liked the character of Vasquez. And oh. he, he actually wanted to hire that actress to play her until he found out she she's not Latina. She's Jewish. Oh. <laughs> interesting yeah so they so uh vasquez was kind of a uh, brown face in that movie i see yeah <laughs> it was the 80s everyone was doing it i guess it's true though i mean yeah weird okay that's interesting that kind of explains some of the background because i can kind of see vasquez vasquez in tasha so and i think originally um marina Sirtis had auditioned to play tasha and I think it was like, and I think Denise Crosby had auditions to play Deanna. And I think they just decided, no, you know what, let's, let's, let's swap these two. I think it'll work what out. What a great choice. Way. Cause neither of them would have worked well in each other's roles. I can't see Marina Sirtis playing, playing a, a hardened badass, but Denise no. Crosby played her, plays her very well. Plays her very well. Yeah. And I really like that she can fight and she actually looks like she can fight. Mm-hmm. Um, like her chore- choreography looks like she's actually been, you know, taught how to look like she's actually fighting somebody. As far as data goes, um, I wrote in my notes, he's a walking thesaurus. Yes. Uh, um, <laughs> just like Dax. Drax, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, I know a lot of like um, autistic fans of Star Trek really latched onto Data, and you mm. can really see it in early episodes when he starts info dumping and doesn't know when to stop, 
and it's obviously an inappropriate time to do it. And it's like, okay, thank you. That's enough. And it's like, yes, yes, I definitely see that. It's just, oh, I found found my interest and I'm just going to expound at length on it. I don't dislike or like Data yet in the few episodes I've seen. I just see him as kind of like an interesting character. I hate the color of his outfit, but I I think you told me that that was because it looked better with his like android skin tone or whatever. Yes. But that gold color is so ugly. And they use it a lot. They, yeah, they did a screen test with him wearing a blue outfit because he was supposed to be the science officer. Right. But the blue clashed with his, uh, with his gold skin so much. They're like, no, let's put him in a gold uniform and then let's rename the science officer to Ops. Is that what he is officially, Ops? Yeah, he is the Ops officer. Okay. And then I guess Worf is our last character, and I don't have an impression of him yet, other than does he keep a hair straightener on the Enterprise? Because his hair is so perfect all the time (laughs) um but i they don't he doesn't get a ton of time he's basically a glorified extra in this episode and he's kind of treated that way for most of the first season um i I don't i'm not even sure like i think seeing the original like uh audition sheets the original cast list for the next generation i don't know that Worf was even counted as the principal cast Probably because they didn't want to focus on the Klingons. You think that's why? Because they were trying to get away from the Klingons, right? That's why the Betazoid exists and why uh, Ferengi were introduced and stuff. Yeah, maybe. I think it's. I think it's more like they just hadn't put a lot of thought into it. Like I said, his he doesn't really get a lot to do in the first season. It's really like going forward in like season two and stuff that they figure out what they want to do with his character. Interesting. What I think is funny is just the makeup in this episode, uh, and, and for a lot of the first season, just the um, the forehead makeup that he wears. Uh, behind the scenes, they called it a turtle shell. Uh, <laughs> so they're just like, oh, he's just got the turtle on his head. But just the first season is just so bulbous. It's just like... It, it, <laughs> it does look kind of increasingly uncomfortable. Like it just looks like, wow, I can't help but stare at it when he's talking, kind of thing. So I'm. Sh- so you're saying it gets toned down later? Yeah, they, it's not. It's not so. It doesn't make his head bulge out anymore. It seems like they were like, okay, no, let's 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 make sure that it actually fits the shape of his head. Yeah, which is good. <laughs> okay, did we miss anybody? I think that's everybody. Uh, there was technically uh, Chief O'Brien was in this episode, though he was not named. Um, interestingly, uh, because he's in this episode, and because he later goes on to join the cast of Deep Space Nine, he is, I think, the only actor to appear in both the series' premieres and finales of both the next generation in deep space nine i think so too because there was a few that were i saw in the notes on imdb for this episode that were in the first and the finale of next generation yes but including o'brien but that there wasn't but they didn't talk about that but yeah i think as far as i know that would make sense too um i don't know much about his character at all yet i just have him written down as that asshole from that tom cruise movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he doesn't he's he's more of a just like a, an ascended extra in the first couple seasons they they just you know they wanted to have a continuity of uh, uh an extras on set who would always be there so you were like well of course they're there because it's the crew why would they keep rotating the crew out um but once they start developing deep space nine in the background i think that's when they start 
giving him more to do on TNG so that he's a more established character once they bring him over. Yeah, that makes sense. So, can, so okay, so one of the things, I'm going to take over and ask a question, because okay. one of the things that's been bothering me since the since I watched this the first time and then the second time, why does, and maybe I don't understand what the Enterprise's actual mission is, but I, I'm under the impression that it's like a diplomatic thing, that they just go out and it's kind of like interstellar triple a they go out and help people right like if they need help why -hmm. do they have a battle bridge when you're going into space and torpedoes (laughs) well yeah um if you're going out into unexplored territory you don't know if the people you're going to run into are hostile and if they are hostile and you don't have torpedoes you get blown up the battle bridge itself being called that is because it is the secondary bridge that is on the star drive section when they do because the whole idea is if uh, and they intended to do this more in the show, but they ended up only doing it like three times the uh, the saucer separation. The idea was oh, yeah, if they the got into separation. a dangerous situation, all the civilians would go onto the saucer, while the star drive section would go into battle. So that brings up my second question, which is why are there so many civilians on the starship? Are the why are there so many people here? Uh, not every job on the Enterprise requires you to be a Starfleet officer. There are a lot of scientists and historians and people just with different expertise that they would bring on for uh, different things that wouldn't necessarily need to know starship operations. And also, people are allowed to bring their families aboard. Oh, families. That makes sense. That's why Picard mentioned they've given me a ship with children, because this is this is basically a luxury liner uh, of Starfleet. They, I think there's like a thousand people aboard families uh basically it's like a small uh flying city interesting while they're doing missions while they're doing missions yeah once they get into situations like running into the borg or uh the romulans it's just like why are we sending this ship with i don't know a hundred children aboard into like war zones yeah yeah that's kind of what i'm asking (laughs) having only seen the movies that it makes me go wait what (laughs) you know there is a um, episode in the uh, in like season three that takes place in an alternate timeline where Picard says, "Why would we have children aboard? This is the ship of war." Right, right. I think the idea of having that is just they don't want it to be a ship of war. They want it to be a ship of peace and exploration, and so having a community aboard really helps with that. Okay, I can see that. That makes sense. Let's talk about the trial scene. It's interesting, because uh, it was supposed to be set during the post-atomic horror. Of the 21st century. Whoops. Of the 21st century. Oops, yeah. <laughs> uh, World War Three is a massive uh, nuclear war. Like, 600 million people die. And uh looks like things kind of fall apart <laughs> in, in the interim. Yeah. One thing that just keeps bugging me about that scene, though, is they had the, the one Asian guy who would hit the gong. And say, rise for honor, judge. And then they had the other guy. They had a little person next to him who was very obviously not Asian, but they still gave him the Fu Manchu and like the wispy eyebrows like he was supposed to be Asian. Yeah. And I was just like, what is this? What are you doing? This is very 80s. If you tried to do yeah. that today, people are like, what are you doing? Yeah, no, that's yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's yeah. But I loved that scene. My notes say that Q and Picard are trying to out Shakespeare each other. But I thought it was really cool. Like, I don't know. 
It reminded me of an episode of Doctor Who a little bit, like with the jumping through the different kind of like how Q goes from being the judge to like being the guy in the military uniform to like there was something about it that was very Doctor Who-y to me. Um, But maybe that's what made me like it. But I really liked putting humanity on trial. I don't know. It was a very interesting thing to do in the first episode of the whole series. Mm -hmm. And um, humanity is still on trial. Picard got a stay from that one, but Q points out later is like, "Oh no, this is a, this is an ongoing thing." Yeah, I have in my notes it says humans have always been savage, and it says way to admit the bare minimum. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I could see it coming back around. So let's talk about the saucer separation a little bit. Then, what was with the whole like, let's have Riker do it without the computers to help? Because it was like, is now the time? For this, like, why are we having a dick measuring contest in the middle of all this? It wasn't a dick measuring contest. Did you notice how standoffish Picard was with Riker until that point? No, I didn't catch that. When he comes aboard, Riker doesn't make eye contact. He just makes sure he's, like, filled in. I don't think Picard's ever met Riker before. I mean, he's selected him as his first officer, but he wants to make sure that he made the right choice. I'm sure he Hmm. picked him just based on his service record, but he's putting him through the ringer to make sure that this is the guy... That he wants. Uh, the manual do- redocking of the ship itself. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not brought up a lot in the show, but Riker's one of the best pilots in Starfleet. Interesting. Because I also noticed he didn't really actually do it. He just told the people who were d- controlling the controls what to do. <laughs> right. But he was able to eyeball all the commands just like that. And he got it. Like, it, that's a yeah. very difficult procedure. And he was not even watch- like looking at any instruments. He's just... Look at the view screen, eyeballing it, and he got it. Interesting. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I just didn't know if now was the time for it. I was, but yeah, that I like the way that you put it because it makes sense if they've never met each other before. That Picard would immediately kind of put him through the okay, show me what you can do. Where is the saucer? Is it gone forever? <laughs> I didn't know. Like when they separated the saucer, I was like, okay, well, how do we get those those people back? <laughs> Goodbye, people. Yeah. <laughs> When they separated, I think uh, Worf just set a course uh, for Deneb 4 and while the, uh, the Enterprise went off to fight it. And then the Enterprise warped ahead to Deneb 4 and then just waited for the saucer to catch up on impulse power. I see. Okay. Yeah, because when they redocked, I was like, oh, there it is. But at first I thought, oh, man, the saucer's gone. <laughs> um so there's so much carpet in the enterprise that i think that's an interesting design choice but i also want to talk about the chairs that they sit in okay so so i have this weird obsession with furniture in like futuristic movies mostly because of 2001 Uh, but i noticed that the chairs that like uh data and jordy sit in those those chairs um are like they're this weirdly like reclined like very comfortable looking chair that seems like it would be the antithesis of sit up and pay attention. We're being attacked. (laughs) Like, cause it has them like in this very relaxed, like lay back on this cushy plush velvety chair while you control the starship. And I just thought this, the shape of it was so weird. Um, And they look so cozy, but cozy isn't necessarily what you want on the, bridge right because the bridge is controlling the ship or whatever so between the chairs and the carpet it just reminded me of every house i lived in in the 80s when i was a kid you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i 
but I thought it was so interesting, those chairs, because they're kind of the opposite of like 2001, where everything looks so uncomfortable to sit in. No one would ever want to sit in those chairs. Those chairs looked way too comfortable for like a bridge of a ship that might need to go into battle. Well, I think that was a deliberate choice to make it not look like a military vessel. That's interesting. And yeah, and I guess there is the battle bridge. They're not really meant to be battling from the main bridge, right? And the battle bridge is far more Spartan in design, did you notice? It's smaller. um, It's uh, darker lighting. There's more sharp angles. No, see, I didn't catch that, but that's a good point. Because yes, the bridge itself with all the carpet and the very comfortable looking chairs and stuff, I was concerned about their ability to actually like have a fight. You know, mm-hmm. so how come people just wander into people's um, holodeck experiences? That's yeah, it's that's so weird. So I think <laughs> I think especially early on, later on, the holodeck is more treated like, a, OK, it's my private time. Um, but early on, I think it's because there's only so many holodecks per ship um, uh-huh. that it would just be like a, a rec room where, you know, you would have a program running, but uh, a bunch of people could enjoy it at once. So it was just a Earth Forest was one of the programs that they, they you know, people can just come in and, and, and enjoy. Interesting. But later on, it becomes more of a private thing. And it may be a thing where, like, you might have a holodeck that is designated for public use, or you could reserve a holodeck and have it set to private. And, you know, like how sometimes if you're playing a game, you're like, oh, like, oh, sure, I'll do open lobby. People can come join my game if they want. Or today I'm like, no, I just want to play it by myself. So it's probably something like that. Data okay. didn't seem to mind uh, enjoying the holodeck with other people. Okay, yeah. See, in my mind, when I've thought of the holodecks throughout my lives of being alive, I have always thought it's like this place where you go to have like a private experience or whatnot. And so I was so surprised in this first episode when people just started coming into the holodeck where Data was, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And actually, uh, this isn't the first uh, instance of a holodeck. Gene Roddenberry had the idea for a long time. It was just doing it on the original series was uh, would be cost prohibitive. But in the animated series, the, the 70s animated show that was basically like season four of the original series, they had something called the Rec Room, which was basically mm. just a holodeck. Interesting. Okay. And when we see the holodeck later, and I think Code of Honor, I realized for the first time, and you're going to laugh, but I realized for the first time that the Dreamatorium is patterned after a holodeck. And I figured it was sort of based on, on community. I kind of figured mm-hmm. it was based off of that, but I didn't, even the yellow lines and everything I had yes. never seen before until <laughs> yes. I saw Code of Honor. And I was like, hey, it's the Dreamatorium. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the reference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I figured that's what it was, but I had never actually seen, like, the yellow lines on the wall. I mean, we haven't really talked about the plot of the story, but, I mean, the plot itself was kind of basic, you know? Yeah, it was pretty basic. It was, uh, they captured an alien, forced it to build a thing, and then uh, its uh, husband came up and was like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, just like Godzilla. I had it in my notes that, uh, they had color-coded the jellyfishes. They were pink and blue, because you gotta make sure... No, that one's the girl jellyfish. Oh, were they color-coded? They were color-coded. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I thought when I was watching it, I was like, oh, Hugh wants to sleep with C- Picard, but more importantly, the jellyfish wanna... Oh, wait, they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kind of do uh, do the do on screen, don't they? 
Yeah, just like they're one of the blue guys from, what's it called? Uh, Avatar. Like, they just put their little t- tendrils together and do the do right there. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I don't really remember what the guy's name was, but the older guy that looked like James Halliday from Ready Player One that turned out to be the bad guy the whole time. Groffler Zorn. Yeah, he was an interesting character. I liked the way he was acted, and I liked him being there. I found him interesting. Um, and he was you kind know, of a in, sniveling little prick. Yeah, like it kind of reminded me of like, oh shoot, the name is escaping me, but the guy that uh, poisons the king and Rohan in Lord of the Rings, kind of like if he had worm to go tongue, off. Yeah, worm tongue. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of him, like kind of this guy that like maybe this is what Worm Tongue did after he was banished from Rohan. But, like, someone who is good at, like, manipulating people and thinks he's good at manipulating people, but isn't as good as he thinks he is kind of thing, you know? Um, but that's what he kind of reminded me of with Wormtongue. Because, but I thought he was an interesting character that kind of gets overshadowed by the whole Q thing, you know? And if he hadn't, if Q hadn't been there, I think that guy would have kind of been the main, like, oh, he's kind of a cool character, interesting character. Well, he know? was the main villain of it before they wrote Q into it. So yeah. Um, one thing that I I have seen this episode so many times throughout my life, and I just can't help but notice that once he's been beamed up to the, um, the, the, the jellyfish and is being tortured there, they only had like a limited number of lines for him, like as he's being tortured and complaining and they just loop them. You can just hear him repeat the exact same screams and the same lines, like, Oh, two or three times in the episode and every single time they do it i just can't help but notice it i'm like yes okay here it comes there's the loop all right there's the other loop <laughs> so something i learned from imdb and i don't know if you know this is that industrial light and magic worked on this episode mm-hmm. a lot i guess and it's the only episode they worked on the entire series but they're credited throughout the series because they reuse bits from it so much well i assume they're just the flyby shots um and they did the um the intro the, the title sequence which uh the title sequence is redone for season 2 but uh a lot of the elements of it they probably still kept the interesting thing about the title sequence is that it seems to be Jupiter and Saturn like it's our own yes, galaxy it, it is our <laughs> own solar system that in the first season and uh starting in season 2 they do alien planets but for the first season they did the uh our solar system I want to know the age difference between Riker and Picard. Because I feel like it's not that much, even though they look vastly varied in age. I don't think they're that different in age, right? Because John Luke is only like 35 or something, right? Well, no, actually. um, Patrick Stewart was, I want to say, 46 or 47 when they filmed. However, Jean-Luc himself is much older than Patrick Stewart. Uh, oh, okay. I didn't know that. I yeah. just was going by what age Patrick Stewart was and assuming that's what Jean-Luc was supposed to be. No, I think Jean-Luc is about 15 years older than Patrick Stewart. And because um, he's been a captain for 22 years of his career at this point. 22. That's a long time to be a captain. Yeah, he yeah. was captain of the Stargazer for 22 years before he became captain of the Enterprise. Stargazer is a much cooler sounding ship name. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really liked the Enterprise, but but Star what Stargazer you said Stargazer. I kind of like that one. Yeah, and we'll yeah. see that we'll see the Stargazer in a future episode. Oh, cool! But yeah, I think it's just that because Patrick Stewart went bald so young, he looks at least back then he looked older than he is. Um, and also, it's the future, so 
uh, people live a long time. I mean, Bones is 137. He's still walking yeah, around. Yeah, that's and right. That's right. Yeah. I think Riker is in his late 20s or early 30s at this point, uh, but Picard is around 60. Okay. I have men in a dress in an, with an exclamation mark. That's <laughs> Oh, yes. Let's talk about that. Uh, man in a dress. Yes. Th- that, uh, uniform variant is called the scant. Uh, it's mm-hmm. something Tro- Troy wore in that episode. And the fact that they had a man wearing it is actually, uh, very significant. They were like, look, we've, we want to keep the mini skirt that we had from the original series, but let's be egalitarian about it. It's the future. Right. Everyone's gay. Everyone's going to wear a skirt. It's the 90s, Kimmy. It, it is a uniform option. Anyone can wear it. And I really like that they put a man in there. The writers were always more progressive than the producers. Rick Berman was a massive homophobe and he didn't want anything gay going on. Actually, I think Jordy was supposed to be a threefer. He's a twofer. He's disabled and black, but they also wanted him to be gay. I heard that too, I think, on the IMDb when I was looking for it. But no, I thought it was super cool to see like a dude walking around in one of the mini skirts, you know, because yeah, growing up watching the original series, I saw a lot of that mini skirt. You're going to see a lot of stuff in uh in 90 Star Trek where it's very obvious that the writers are trying to get something pro gay past the radar of the producers. <laughs> I see. Well, hopefully it continues then cuz I like it. I read on IMDb. I don't know if you know this one. This was one of the things I was going to try to stump you with, but I couldn't okay. put it into a question. All so, right. but there is a there's a shelf in the mall scene, the mall at Farpoint, okay. um, and that is also it's from the second or third Star Trek movie. It's in Kirk's quarters. Interesting. And then it shows up again in, I think, The Naked Now in Tasha's quarters. So they kind of just moved that piece around for those first couple episodes, but it had come from one of the movies, I think the second or third one. And I thought that was an interesting prop, like that it's made its way around these three different uh, episodes or whatever. Prop and set um, but- reusage is like, that is like a big thing in Star Trek. You're going to see a lot of reused sets, or you're going to see a lot of repurposed props. Actually, I'm pretty sure all of the sets. For TNG were redressed sets from one of the movies. They would make sense, though. It's the same universe and everything. Yeah. It's not like where Kubrick said, destroy everything. I can't have anybody making a space movie that looks like my movie. <laughs> um, and the only thing that made it was a couple spacesuits, and they make it into another, like, B, like, sci fi movie later that I watched specifically to see those spacesuits and you know, the ones that Dave wears to go out when he mm-hmm. does his spacewalk because specifically because Kubrick said don't reuse my space shit in other movies but with it being within the same show and the same the same universe it like plot or set reusage and proper usage makes sense to me a little bit more than mm-hmm. in maybe something else you know but like if you go to Wrath of Khan and watch the scene where Spock dies you can easily recognize that as leak yes that is in fact the Enterprise D engineering uh, 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 <laughs> of room that is that they just redressed it. It's got the, the, the big vertical pipe running through it and everything. <laughs> yeah. I should rewatch the movies when we're done wa- watching the show because I haven't watched them for a very long time. It'd be an interesting thing for me to rewatch. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Ari. And I'm Gayfesh. And until next time, live long and prosper. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at Rest Both Worlds. 
Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash worlds for bonus content and hear your name at the end of each episode.